Uh, I'm going to go over to the book of Haggai for a few minutes here at the beginning uh, of this sermon, uh, partially because uh, it was brought up in the sermonette, <clears throat> and partially because it's been on my mind that I think I'm maybe understanding something here that I had not grasped before. But we're studying the book of Nehemiah, and this certainly ties in, because the building of the temple and the uh, renewing and building of Jerusalem uh, back then is certainly a pattern for events that must occur today. Remember our study recently in Daniel 9 showing that from the time that the order to rebuild Jerusalem comes, we have 69 and a half weeks until uh, the abomination of desolation is set up in the city and the sanctuary or the altar, the temple, are destroyed again. So it will be rebuilt, it will last a very short time, and will be destroyed again at that time. Um, so what we are talking about in the series we're doing right now is a pattern for today. Things that must happen soon. Now, the book of Haggai is about building the end-time temple. It's not about that story back then. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are the historical account of what happened in the past and lay a pattern for the future. They are not in that sense prophetic as such, but when they put down a pattern for the future, in one way it becomes prophetic. However, God brought forth that story and put it in the minor prophets in the books of Haggai and Zechariah, therefore making it directly prophetic of what will happen in the end time. And we know that Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two witnesses of the book of Revelation 11. That is proved by comparing Zechariah 4.14, I believe it is, with Zechariah showing that those two anointed ones or sons of oil are the ones that feed the church at the end time, as Zechariah 4 points out. So, the book of Haggai and the book of Zechariah are all about the end time. And in fact, in context, go from the beginning of God saying in the book of Haggai, go build the temple to the time Christ returns to the Mount of Olives and the Feast of Tabernacles is kept in Jerusalem in Zechariah 14. So they are altogether an end-time prophecy and nothing else but that. Okay? Now, people have brought up, and indeed I, have looked at Haggai 2 and uh, verse, which is the one I want, 18, I guess. Consider now from this day and upward from the 4 and 20th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. No, that's not the one I want. It says, from this day will I bless you. Oh, this day and upward. Well, where is it? Now I won't fall on it. 19, is it? Oh, yeah, from this day will I bless you, the end of the verse. And I've been looking at that date as it comes on the calendar for the last 12 years to see what year that might indeed occur, okay? It's not something that we're prophesying any particular year it will happen. It's that God said that on the ninth month, the 24th day, from that day forward, he would bless us. The only thing is he didn't tell us what year. <laughs> he didn't even tell us, well, he told us what millennium uh, because we know it's the end time. That's right now. Uh, but he didn't tell us which precise year in the end time that it would be. 
Now, my thinking had been on this, and I'd passed it along to some of you and maybe even said it in a sermon, I don't remember, that the book of Haggai addresses, and Haggai was told to address Zerubbabel and Joshua in the first verse of Haggai 1, uh, that it came to them. And then in the second chapter, in the seventh month, in the 21st day, came the word of God by Haggai, and he was told to speak to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and to the residue of the people. So when we come way on down in chapter 2, to where it talks about the ninth day of the twenty, uh, ninth month, 24th day, my thinking has been, well, this time of blessing could not be until after Zerubbabel and Joshua and the residue of the people had come together because it's downstream in the book from chapter 1, obviously, and from the beginning of chapter 2, obviously. So this had to be a time of blessing that came after the two witnesses were together and the gathering or the remnant of God's people had come together to start building in the temple. But here about, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, I got thinking about this and went back and read it again. And there's something quite interesting here. He addresses, as I said, Joshua and Zerubbabel first in 1-1. He includes those two plus the residue of the people in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now let's go on down. He's talking here about building the temple and everything as if it's in that sense, going on, or prophesying that it will. But verse 10 of chapter 2. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, that's the one verse 19 says is the day that he will bless us, okay? In the second year of Darius, same year, came the word of the eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying. Notice he doesn't address anyone this time. Doesn't say Zerubbabel, doesn't say Joshua, doesn't say the residue of the people. He doesn't address anyone in particular. Interesting departure from what he's done the previous two times, isn't it? Why would that be? Let's go on. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law. In a general way it addresses someone because he tells Haggai to ask the priests a question. Now it is not necessarily a message to those priests, is it? Like it was a message to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the residue. This is just ask the priests a question. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priests answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, so he asked them a question, he got a response, that you can't mix the clean and the unclean or everything becomes unclean is basically the message there. Then answered Haggai and said, he was driving to a point, so is this people and so is this nation before me. I think he perhaps is talking about God's church and also the nation as a whole. And so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. We had mixed too much of the world with God and with God's word, 
And therefore, we were accounted by God as unclean. Uh, he spit us out, to make the story short. And we have been scattered as vomit since. So that's the state we find ourselves in. And we are in a state now where we are about to see the nation spewed out and taken captive as well. So we're right in that crack between the one happening and the other about to happen. <clears throat> so that brings us to today, doesn't it? And now, I ask you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Now, he's not here necessarily talking about the 9th and 24th. He's saying, consider from the day before a stone was laid in the temple of the Eternal. Now, Zerubbabel, in Zechariah 4, is said to be the one who will lay the foundation of the temple. It seems to imply there that there will come a time of non-building, as there was in the days of Ezra. There was a, a, a delay or a break in the action. I put it, Zerubbabel seemed to be out to lunch uh, when I went through the Minor Prophets. So God says, your hand started it, they will finish it. So whoever this Zerubbabel is, I will not speculate on that at the moment, he will have laid the foundation of the temple, and then he will go into a quiescent period, it appears to me, and then we'll come back to finish it. So, Haggai is saying, consider from the day before the foundation of the temple was even laid. I think at this time it would probably be safe to say that the spiritual temple foundation has been laid but certainly the temple, spiritually, has not been finished. Now there's Osiris coming, who will say to the physical temple, your foundation must be laid. But the spiritual, I think, has already been established. So he said, consider before that ever happened, okay? So this is a flashback. Haggai opens, talking to the two witnesses and the remnant of the people who will have gathered, but here in chapter 2, we see a flashback to before a, temple, a stone was laid in the foundation of the temple. I think the spiritual temple here, okay? Since those days were, and he defines it more explicitly here. Since those days were, when one came to a heap of 20 measures, and there were but 10, when one came to the press fat for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands, yet you turned not to me, says the Eternal. Now he's rehearsing here what he began to do to the church when the latter temple came apart. I mean the former temple, excuse me. When Herbert Armstrong's work, if you will, God's work through Herbert Armstrong, began to come apart at the seams. And we went into spiritual famine and pestilence and... No man's work seemed to accomplish anything. We're still in that period of time where some groups and organizations are still trying to do a work, but there's no increase. They plant and they plant and they plant and they water and they dung and they dig, and nothing happens. 
So he's referring to this time. And yet, you turn not to me, says the eternal. God is working at bringing the church to repentance. Most are not paying any attention to what God is doing. They're going on trying to plant a crop, trying to harvest souls, and nothing has happened, but they are not seeking God wholeheartedly or all out or diligently or as one seeks silver and gold, to put it the way Christ said it in so many words. That's not the way the church as a whole is seeking God today. So this is God saying that the conditions we find ourselves in are here today. Consider now, from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Eternal's temple was laid, consider it. So he, he says, consider before a temple, a, a stone was laid, and things were bad. Now, he says it again, consider from that time. Is the seed yet in the barn? Did you, you might have planted it, but did you harvest anything and harvest it and put it in the barn? As yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate. You might have planted these trees. People have planted some works. Have they harvested fruit? And the olive tree has not brought forth. So he said, before the foundation of the temple was laid, you were a time of famine, difficulty, in a general sense, speaking of the church, not to individuals here, he's casting back to that time. But he says, from this day forward, the 9th and 24th, will I bless you. My conclusion to that at the moment, at least, is that Zerubbabel and Joshua don't have to be together. The temple does not have to be built. The remnant does not necessarily have to be gathered then before the 9th and 24th means something. He shows some blessing in Isaiah 52, 8. Remember that one? We've been there many times and I've referred to it. Let me go back there and, and review that just a moment. Isaiah 52. You see, there's so many times in here that God promises blessing. He promises a turnaround in Isaiah 52. He promises huge blessings in Isaiah 54 and 55. He promises blessings in Joel on the, he says, pray for the former and the latter rain in the first month, in April. And then we sometimes expect maybe great blessings will occur again on Pentecost. So we scratch our head and say, well, when does the first blessing come? I, you know, I want to know about that first one. Then we'll, then we'll discuss the second, third, and fourth. But there are different references to different times of the year when blessings will come. Well, notice here in Isaiah 52 where he tells us to put on our beautiful garments to get ready to be the bride uh, and get loose from our captivity, the bonds of Babylon that we're under, and so on, in Egypt. 
Verse 7 says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, one, that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says to Zion, Your God reigns. He's alive. He will do these things. Thy watchmen, plural. So there'll be one who preaches these things, and then two watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. Joshua and Zerubbabel apparently don't see eye to eye for some time. And therefore, they're not together, and therefore, the remnant does not come until that happens. Now, when are they going to see eye to eye? When is the thing God brings up next? When the eternal shall bring again, or bring back, or bring around Zion, begin to bless it again. And he says, break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place laid waste, whether you talk about the church or whether you talk about physical Jerusalem. Remember Isaiah 61 says that Jerusalem has been laid waste for many generations, has been desolate for many generations. You cannot say that of the church. In fact, the church has been extant here in the end for up to four generations now. There are fourth generation Christians, quote unquote, in the church today. I don't know whether it's gone through with true Christianity for four generations or not, but there are people now associated with the church who are in the fourth generation. So it's not been laid desolate or waste, speaking of the church, for many generations. For the eternal has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. He's redeeming it. He's bringing Jerusalem back. And when God starts turning some things around, then he will put his two witnesses together, he will put the remnant of the people together, and we'll have cause for joy, because God will have started bringing a blessing. Well, notice in chapter 20, Levine tells us we got to be clean, those that bear the vessels of the eternal. God made Jerusalem desolate, brethren, because of sin. And he is not going to redeem it into the hands of sinners. If we want to continue to sin and to be a part of this world, God is going to weed us out. We may see that today in Nehemiah if we get that far. But then you have Isaiah 53 in there, which shows Christ and all that he went through, the Passover time. And it makes me wonder if that is not a key here. The ninth and 24th day this year comes on January 2nd or 3rd. And the reason I equivocate there is that I think there is a possibility uh, that it could be one or the other. And here's why. We have calculated that the, that day this year would be January the 3rd, which is this coming Thursday. That is calculating when the sundown comes in the Jerusalem and the Middle East and then bringing it around to here. All right, that would make the third, this coming Thursday, the ninth day of the 24th month. However, if you consider the possibility that the actual original Jerusalem was in America, uh, the time of the new moon conjunction 
this past month, occurred at such a time that uh, the new moon would fall a day earlier if you take the next sundown from here instead of the next sundown from over there. So if this be the new Jerusalem, or the original Jerusalem over here, which I think is a strong possibility, then if this, if this is the year, the 924 is the day God begins to bless us, then it would be Wednesday instead of Thursday. I am very curious to see. If it turns out to be Wednesday, it will corroborate that figuring the calendar from here is the way God would want it done. If it comes on Thursday, then it would corroborate that we're doing it right from that Jerusalem over there. So there's a lot riding on this year as far as some of my expectations or questions or whatever about the calendar and perhaps other things. I do not know. As I said last year, I told you last year, you might remember, that the 9th and 24th was coming up and that we weren't saying that that would be the year that blessing would come, but just to remind, because I've been watching it for 12 years specifically now. Uh, if this is the year, it will be interesting to me if it comes on Wednesday or on Thursday and if there's some... Uh, something that happens or occurs that would cause us to feel blessed, let's put it that way. Uh, and it might also have some bearing on the calendar as to whether we should do it one way or the other. It would also corroborate that taking the new moon after the spring equinox is the way to go because we did take it after this year and others took it before the day before the spring equinox. And if we are blessed on a month later with a piece of tabernacles coming the way it did this year, that also throws the 9th and 24th a month later. So it would also show that that is the correct way to look at that, or it could show that it's the wrong way to look at it. We got to, you know, this is a two-sided coin here. We might have to change some things one way or another. Now, if it doesn't turn out the year that this is the year that it matters, then we'll wait, <laughs> you know, and see if next year is the year. So I don't know that, and I'm not trying to say that. All I'm saying is these are some things that I'm considering myself that, uh, if it happens, could be uh, important. But then Isaiah 53, after the Passover, shows great blessing occurring. So is it possible the 9th and 24th could be the first blessing, or first time of blessing, and then when the first month comes, we pray for the former and the latter rain and an increased blessing from God. Then Pentecost might bring an even greater blessing. When this thing turns around, whether it be this year, next year, or the year after, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see what God says. But the, the way it comes together is, to me, interesting. And there are some other points that I will not go into at this point, some other thoughts, but I don't have enough to, to tell you that that would be the case, and I don't like to speculate on things that I don't have at least a scripture to... Well, I might have a scripture, but never mind. Um, I didn't quite finish up, I think, or did I, in Haggai, what I was going to say there. 
Anyway, from the 9th and 24th, he says, I will bless you, whatever year that comes. This year it is Wednesday or Thursday of this coming week, as I understand the calendar. But notice then again in verse 20, and again the word of the Eternal came to Haggai in the 4th and 20th day of the month. So he had another message on the same day, a different message. This time, however, it is directed to Zerubbabel. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And so on. He's a message to finish this book up, that this is an end time when God is about to overthrow the kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kings and overthrow the chariots and so on and uh, shake the heavens and the earth. So that shows right there again that this is an end time book talking about what God does here and how he's going to make Zerubbabel a signet or a banner before the nations. So I think that there is room in Haggai as a summary statement to look at the fourth and twenty, the ninth month, the twenty-fourth day as something that could happen before Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people gather. Because he, he casts back before and doesn't address them, but addresses conditions. And says that when those conditions are such, a famine and so on, before the foundation of the temple was laid, I'll bless you. So what brings us out of then the famine, the pestilence, the spiritual malaise that we've been in? Well, God turns around and begins to bless. Isn't that what it says there in Isaiah 52, 8 and 9? So it may just well be that before the rest of the book of Haggai occurs, God will start to bless. That will bring us out of the famine and pestilence spiritually, and events will occur which will then start bringing the people together. See, he turns it around a little bit in Isaiah 52, 8 and 9 and says, I'm going to turn it around, and there will be cause for rejoicing. Then it shows the Passover, and then it says, stretch out your tent, make it lots bigger, lengthen the cords, because a lot of people are going to begin to come. It may be that the knowledge that is necessary will be. Remember that January has always been a very, very important month in the work of God in the end time. Most of the major events and worldwide happened, good or bad, mostly good, I'd say, but good or bad happened in January. That was just, you could count on it. And that has been true of us as well. The knowledge that we are now aware of started coming in January of 96. The knowledge that Utah and the Middle East are the same maps came at Passover in 96. I find that interesting to consider. Wood blessing began to come the beginning of January of whatever year, and then real blessing become uh, possible around Passover time when maybe knowledge is increased enough that so people will begin to come. What kind of leap forward must occur 
for people to take notes and begin to come and work in the temple. I'll just leave that open at the moment. But it's got to be something pretty major that God does because nothing you or I can do, I'll guarantee you that, will cause people to start coming from all over the earth to be here with us. Look at you, look at me, look at the neighbors around you, and ask yourself, would this cause people to come by the thousands? <laughs> it's okay to laugh. Now, it's got to be something God does that would cause people to come. You and I cannot do it. We just don't have it. We're, we're not that magnetic. Thank you. We're just not. It's God's doing. We need to be here to be servants. We need to be here to help. We came here, I believe, to be a prep crew. And I believe that God is going to do his work in this area. And I hope you and I can be included in that. Uh, that knowledge began to come in January of 96. That's 12 years ago. Uh, 12 is an important number. It's the number of organized beginnings, in fact, in the Bible. Whether that has any bearing this year, I do not know. How did I get off on all this stuff? I didn't intend to go there today. Um, just some possibilities. I do not know. This is the year. But I think that the information is correct whenever the year comes along. That, I feel, is so. But I wanted to share with you a little bit about the 9th and 24th, and that my thinking has changed, that that could occur before uh, the gathering begins. It might be what helps precipitate the gathering. Uh, in the year that it happens, <laughs> on the 9th and 24th, which is usually the end of December or January, this year it happens to fall in January. And again, then the Passover comes, and then it says, stretch your tents. So I think that Isaiah 52, 3 and 4 is telling us something about sequence there. Of course, the question that burns is, is this year? And we will not even go there. We shall see. One thing about it, if you speculated anything on the year that is, you never have long to wait. If you speculate on 2026, it gets depressing, you know. But if you speculate on something close, then you find out, and if that's not it, then you speculate on something else close. All right, let's go to Nehemiah then. We finished chapter 6 last time. Again, this is the historical account setting the pattern for the building of Jerusalem at the end time, which I think Daniel 9 tells us has to happen. In fact, the building of Jerusalem, uh, or the 70 weeks prophecy, is predicated on the, the order to rebuild Jerusalem. And that Jerusalem is already over there, isn't it? It isn't anywhere else, it's there. And it doesn't need to be rebuilt, it hasn't been destroyed. So, uh, if you're waiting for that to be destroyed and then rebuilt, I think you're looking at the wrong thing. Uh, Jerusalem has to be built on a location where it has been desolate for many generations, Isaiah 61. So, it has to be rebuilt, and 69 and a half weeks later, it's destroyed by the abomination of desolation. 
Let me tie in one more little thing I found this morning. I thought it was quite interesting. Go on over to Daniel 11 for a moment, because it has to do with this. It's talking here about the abomination of desolation being set up in verse 31 of Daniel 11, and how some who apparently are of the Holy Covenant and forsake it have communication or intelligence with the beast, end of verse 30. Uh, so this is building up to that. Now remember that there is a covenant made uh, with many at the 69th week of the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel 9. He makes a covenant with many. I think it's talking of that right here. He'll have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. He'll make a covenant with them for a week, but he'll break it off and break that covenant after three and a half days. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. We know that that is the day to flee to the place of safety, and there'll be three and a half years after that until the resurrection. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits is in italics. God is interested in doers, not promisers. We say we're going to do something, we better get it done. Not doers, uh, not hearers of the word only, but doers, as we read in the New Testament. And it says some of understanding will fall even to try them. And it's talking about the end time here, obviously. And this king that takes over, Verse 37, will not regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And he'll just honor the God of forces, so that is military or war. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. And he'll have a strange God, and he'll divide the land for gain. We've read about plans to divide this country up, destroy its sovereignty. And in Daniel uh, 8, it talks about dividing, I think, this land into four pieces and having governors over them. That's that little horn that is the ruler of one of those four partitions of this country that will come and set up the abomination of desolation. So this guy takes over. Uh, verse 41, I'm getting down to the point part. I want to make a point here or two. He shall also enter into the glorious land, or the goodly land, or the land of delight, the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, uh, the promised land, the goodly land God said he would give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many shall be overthrown. Countries there is also in italics, it isn't in the original. <clears throat> many shall be overthrown. But these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. Remember in the sermonette, uh, Gordon was talking about how God had given the land of the Abert, uh, Amorites and the king of Heshbon and uh, Og, uh, the king, had given Israel their land. Uh, Moab is over here, the only place on earth named Moab is in southeastern Utah. And where is the head of the IRS office in the western United States? Og's Den. Utah. I think that is quite interesting. King Og of ancient history may have had his name brought forward right here 
in this state. So he's talking about the glorious land. This may have been the original promised land. And he shall have power. Well, wait a minute. Let's see. He'll stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver. Now, God shows that Cyrus is going to be shown and given the hidden treasures of darkness and the precious things that are hidden, however he puts it, there in Isaiah 50, uh, no, excuse me, Isaiah 45. Now, when they overrun the newly built Jerusalem and the newly built temple, they will then have the treasures of God, the gold and the silver and the precious things that God has brought forth for his people, but his people are going to be run off. And they're going to set up the abomination that makes desolate there, and they will then have the gold and the silver. And over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now, Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia, if this is the cradle of civilization, we're here. There are many reports that there is an ancient city of Egypt with an entrance in the wall of the Grand Canyon. That section of the Grand Canyon is shut down by the government and no one can go there. But it is said by many accounts that there's a huge city under there that is Egyptian. And it makes me wonder if the treasures of Egypt are there. And of course, this individual will have all power and he can go there. And he may uncover the treasure of Egypt. I mean, you want to go to Egypt now and look for treasures? Man, good luck. There's not much over there that's obviously treasure, and if there's any treasure there, it's pretty well buried. So, I don't know. Notice this. The tidings out of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go forward with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And notice where he plants his palace. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas, in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. If he winds up with the treasures of God, he is going to build his palace there. And it says that it is in the glorious holy mountain between the seas. God's glorious holy mountain, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, are then obviously between two seas. If you look at that Jerusalem in the Middle East, there is one sea about 50 miles, 60 miles to the west. There is no other sea until you get clear over the other side of Arabia, long, long way away to the uh, Indian Ocean. It doesn't really fit. Now this seems to be, to me, to be close proximity. Build this palace in the glorious mountain between two seas. Sounds like it's a mountain with seas on either side of it. Now, in a larger sense, if this was the promised land, it could be a mountain with the Atlantic on one side and the Pacific on the other, if you want to take the huge picture of the entire land of promise that we have. But this seems to be, to me at least, more specific than that. And the Jerusalem that we are considering had a huge sea to the west, Lake Bonneville, and a large body of water, and you can see the lake bed for miles and miles out there. And on the east side, apparently, was the Sea of Galilee. 
And the measurements there to an old riverbed are exactly the same as in Ezekiel, where he went out and it was to his ankle, went a thousand furlongs to his knee and a thousand furlongs to his hip. The measurements are exactly the same as what you see in Ezekiel, from the mountain there out to the old riverbed, which probably was the original Sea of Galilee. So it may be that God will cause his people to build Jerusalem back, put the walls up, the moat, as Daniel 9 tells us, and then it will be destroyed by the abomination that makes desolate. We will flee. They will take over the treasures, and they will build a palace there and think they're going to reign forevermore. That's just a little more detail, perhaps, to consider as we go on through Nehemiah. So let's get back there now that I'm nearly done. <clears throat> I was going to get through 7, 8, and 9 today, but don't hold your breath. Let's pick it up in chapter 7. Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors, and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed. And, you know, it's the time to dedicate the wall in that sense. It's all done. Work's finished. You get the singers ready, then you know you're about ready to party and, and have a good time because the work is done. At that time, once the job was finished, it didn't need his oversight anymore, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. He was not going to entrust Jerusalem. Remember, he had to go back to the king. Uh, so he could only stay so long. But he wanted to leave Jerusalem in charge of a faithful man who feared God above many. Now, there may have been a few around who feared God more. He didn't say he feared God more than anyone, but more than most, I guess, would be what you would have to say here. I did, uh, uh, Gordon did a little research and found that what I had said before uh, apparently does check out, that Artaxerxes is the same king as Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. Uh, I had made a note in my Bible on that, and he researched and did some more background on it and found that it actually is true. So I wanted to confirm that. I think I left a question mark a little bit when I went through that. So the story of Esther and Haman and so on ties in directly then with this pattern about the building of the temple. And I think it makes then us keeping Purim uh, more today than we might have even considered or thought in the past. Just another thing there. But he had to go back to Ahasuerus. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch, and everyone to be over against his house. Well, normally you would open the doors at sun, sun up and at sundown. Uh, people would go out and farm their fields outside the city. Uh, that's the way it was done anciently, and people would come in behind the walls at night to protect themselves from anyone who might kill them during the night. You didn't stay on your farm. You stayed in town and went out and farmed your farm. But he said, we have a lot of enemies about. Don't you open the gates at sunup. You wait until the sun's hot. You wait until they can't 
rush you from the shadows and have a surprise attack while it's still not quite light. You wait, be sure. And then at night, stand by and watch. Be sure no one gets in who could later maybe open the gates and let an army in. So stand by, keep a careful watch. Uh, Luke 21 tells us to watch and pray always, to be careful, to be aware of what is going on, and to be aware of the times in which we live. So the principle certainly carries forward to today, and Luke is talking there about the end times and coming to the abomination of desolation being set up, being a parallel scripture to Luke, uh, to Matthew 24. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not built. They built the walls for protection first before they began to put up houses for themselves. So there weren't a lot of people there, and they had to be very, very careful. They could have been overwhelmed very easily. Uh, my God, and my God, verse 5, put into my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. So God says, build Jerusalem back. They go there to do it. They get the work done, and God put in Nehemiah's heart to check to be sure who was an Israelite here. You've got to know. Now, doesn't he tell us in Zechariah 4 that Zerubbabel will have the plumb line? He will check the verticality, the spiritual standing of the people. You know, people can come. They can build in the temple. People can come, maybe build at Jerusalem. But will they be weeded out? Will God weed them out himself? Will he have Zerubbabel weed them out? We don't like to think that men might have some control, but God says he's going to put the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Very clear. Now, there'll be a final separation when the abomination is set up, and maybe they will not have all been uh, determined as to whether we are true spiritual Israelites or not. And some may be left behind. The good news is probably most will not be left behind. We need to watch and be sure and take careful consideration of ourselves and pray that we be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are to come. It's not something that happens automatically just because we're here. And God put it in Nehemiah's heart to consider the background the genealogy of the people to see if they were truly Israelites or not. If they were not, they had to be separated out. Now, we don't do it by race anymore. That's very clear from the New Testament. That God has grafted in the Gentiles, and they have as much right to the tree of life, to God's kingdom, to God's church, as a physical blood Israelite. There is no difference, whatever. And bragging about being a physical Israelite or a Jew, as some people like to brag, means nothing spiritually. If we are what we ought to be spiritually, it doesn't matter what color or race or background we might have. And in fact, most of us are probably mixed of one sort or another of many different races. 
I know I am. I've got several different races in me. Uh, I think most of them are Israelite, but there's there's some other color in there too. And that's okay. And you're probably the same way. I know I've got some Indian in me. Uh, all you have to do is look at my relatives and figure that out. And there may be some sprinklings of other things in there too. So it doesn't matter. But whether we are truly spiritual Israelites is very important. That's all that really counts or matters. And that will have to be determined. I think that the pattern is set here. And certainly when he said he gives the plumb line to Zerubbabel, he is saying that that will, that delineation will have to be made. Some of us, or some who gather, may have to be sent packing by the ministry that God puts in charge at that time. And if that is not the case, and they fool even them, then God will make the final determination when it comes to flee to a place of safety. So he's not going to let anyone slip through without being what they ought to be. We need to keep that in mind and become what we ought to be. Now, I don't mean to discourage us by that. All I'm trying to say is this. We better be what we ought to be. We cannot be hypocrites. We cannot be associated with and a part of this world. We can't have the lying, cheating, stealing, adulterating, fornicating approach that this world has. There has to be a separation made between the clean and the unclean. Thankfully, we do have a God whose mercy endures forever. And some of that is brought out here just down the line a little bit. It doesn't appear now. Well, we might, we might get that far. I doubt it to show how he showed his mercy over the years. And that was brought out in the sermonette from Psalm 136, his mercy endures forever. So just because we have sinned in the past, and maybe even in the recent past, doesn't mean that we won't be there. God says to him that overcomes. So it doesn't matter what's happened in the past, does it? It doesn't matter what any of us were. All that matters is what we become. So if we currently have some problems, we just need to overcome them and we'll be all right, okay? That's the encouraging part. But God says don't mess around, get it done. Make it happen. Not the hearers, but the doers of the word will be blessed. So it's positive uplift that there is a possibility to escape just be, be sure you do the things that you need to do to escape. Think about it like Houdini. Remember him? He could escape from all kinds of contrivances. They'd put chains on him and locks and put him in a box and drop him in the water. And he would escape. Now, do you think for a moment that he did not consider what they were going to do to him and figure out ahead of time what he needed to do to escape? I doubt if he said, I doubt if he just said, all right, you people figure out something and just throw me in there and I'll escape. No, he carefully orchestrated those things. He knew well ahead of time exactly what they were going to do, how they were going to do it, and he had his escape plan all made before they ever put him in the box and dropped him in the water. I'll guarantee you he did. You would and I would too, wouldn't we? 
we would have to feel we had a way of escape or would never let them do that to us. They were holding their breath when Evil Knievel was going to jump uh, the canyon up there by Twin Falls, Idaho. And on the radio and the te television, everybody was holding their breath. Remember, he was going to ride a, some kind of a rocket. I forget. Did he have his motorcycle there? I don't even remember now. But he was going to jump that canyon. That's a wide canyon. It's not the Grand Canyon, but she's a big one anyway. And deep. And I was driving from Pocatello, just finished services there, to conduct the services in Twin Falls that day. And I was at the bridge at the time he was supposed to do it. And I, I didn't get to see it. I, I was within probably two or three minutes, one way or the other, and didn't see it. But just driving up there, I thought, I know what he's going to do. He's going to parachute out. That's simple. It was a big publicity stunt. He made a lot of money on it. But there's no way he was going to ride that thing across that canyon and let it fall on the other side and maybe kill him. He just died, what, a couple weeks ago, I guess. I saw it in the news. I said, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to parachute out. Duh. Then I hear on the radio a little later, he parachuted out. Well, he had it all figured out well ahead of time, what he would do, how he would make a pile of money, and drift down safely. That's all God is trying to tell us to do. Here's the plan. Here's the escape. Here's what's going to happen. There is a way to miss all this stuff. Here's the procedure you have to follow, and you can escape whole with your hide, and everything will be fine. So God is not trying to hold us down and not get us there. He's just trying to tell us what it's going to take to be home free. Are we willing to go through the process of doing what it takes to arrive there? We have to pay the price. We have to be what we ought to be. God says, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. He is not going to turn the building of the temple or Jerusalem over to those who have unclean hands. If our hands are dirty, we need to clean them up. If we're not obeying God, we need to start. It doesn't matter what we've been. It's a matter of what we've become. So you've no need in wallowing in depression about your past. None of us can get anywhere doing that. All we have to worry about is today and tomorrow because we have a merciful God. So there is coming a time when our spiritual upright will be tested by our leadership physically and ultimately by God himself. And there's no hypocrite. He ponders the heart. There's no hypocrite that's going to get through his scrutiny. You might pass the scrutiny of man. You might be, oh, sincere enough that you could fool people. You can't fool God. He knows your heart. That's just the bottom line. We have politicians, I think you could say of our last couple of presidents, they, are, they work so hard at sounding and looking sincere that their hypocrisy is written all over their faces. You know they're lying to you when they try to act serious and sincere. In fact, that's nearly all politicians, isn't it? We've got to be clean from the heart, brethren. <laughs> A look of sincerity won't get it. Even people can see through hypocritical looks sometimes, not always. But God can. 
and you can't fool him. People say, well, it's hard to live in a goldfish bowl, living right here. You got all these people, see what you do. Well, to a degree that's true. And that's good, really, because it helps us. It's easier to do what's right when you have people who can see what you're doing, and that kind of helps you along the way. It's when they're not around that you can do wrong or think wrong. So it helps to be in that goldfish bowl, but, you know, you can't escape God's eye. You're in a goldfish bowl wherever you go. He sees everything everywhere. So let's not kid ourselves. God is the one that ultimately understands our spiritual genealogy and who we are and what we are. Thankfully, his mercy endures forever. We didn't get to that part of Ezekiel, but we're coming to it if we ever get... Well, we will get back to Ezekiel, God willing, but there's a section not about ten more chapters down from where we went, 33, we were at 22, uh, which talks about our past and our fathers and the children and how we're going to be responsible for our own actions. And we won't be judged by anyone else but ourselves. And it doesn't matter... What we, how good we've been, if we turn evil, we'll be remembered for our evil. But if we were evil and we turn to good, only our good will be remembered. Very, very encouraging right there through Ezekiel 33. So the fact that we're going to be examined can be a good thing. You know, when I go in to get my teeth clean, I, they, they look at my teeth and examine them. That can be a good thing. Because they might rot out of my head if nobody looks at them and says, hey, you got a problem here. We have to be able to withstand examination. You know, everybody that ever went to school knows that, don't they? If you go to class, sooner or later they're going to pop a quiz on you. You're going to have to have an exam. To get out of that room and advance a grade, you're going to have to have an exam. That doesn't change. If you go to work, in the workplace, you have exams all the time. You have to come up to scratch as an employer, it's down the road. If you don't live up to the responsibilities of the job, you won't have a job. You know, and sometimes you can see it coming. A lot of people exit the front door just before the boot hits them in the rear. You know, they're going to quit before they get fired because they feel it coming. Well, if you feel it coming from God, maybe it's time to make some changes. It's uncomfortable knowing you may have a boot in your rear any moment. Just, you know, it's just hard to be at peace. So you change those things so that the boot will drop. It's really quite simple. I'm not saying anything new here. It's really quite simple. But we have to pay attention and not just hear, but do something about it. We must be clean if we're going to bear the vessels of the eternal. And I believe that that speaks physically and spiritually. He is going to reveal his physical vessels from the past here at the end, somewhere, some way, to someone. And he will reveal his spiritual vessels to his people. Both will happen. I think the scriptures are becoming very clear on that.
And he wants to know that we're the right people for the job. Shouldn't fear it in a wrong way, fear it in a right way. Get ready. Get ready to serve God. That's all it's all about. So he put people that feared God in charge, and then he said, God put it in my mind to check everybody else out too. You know, he wanted that Jerusalem to remain, and he didn't want enemies there. He didn't want the brother-in-law of the Amorite king to be in town. He might open the gate at night. He wanted to be sure everybody was there with what they ought to be. That makes sense? Does to me. We're going to fortify something and make it right. We need to have the right people there. Make sure they're the right people. That they're not just playing games. That they want to serve God with their whole heart. That's what it's all about. He says, when you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. So then he went through. Uh, these are the children of the province, verse 6, that went up out of the captivity of those that had been carried away. And then he begins to name names. Goes through nearly a whole chapter of that. And I don't know that we need to, to go through that right at the moment. Let's skip down to verse 66. The whole congregation together was 42,303 score. So those that came out of Babylon, there's your total. I don't expect that many here at the end time when this is redone. He says a 10% remnant. And at best we ever had in the church was 150,000 here in the end time. So I think that that would put the maximum probably at around 15, and that's pushing it with unconverted mates and grandparents and dogs and friends of friends that came with people to the feast. So I think you could start at 15 and work down from there probably. Now that's not a prediction, that's just looking at what happened and how many were called and how many a remnant or 10% of that might be. Verse 70, and some of the chief of the fathers gave to the work. Uh, it talks about how much they gave to throw in the treasury to make things work. Uh, and then verse 71, some of the chief of the fathers gave to the treasure of the work some more. And then verse 72, that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver and three score and seven priest garments. So they all contributed to the work that had to be done. So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and some of the people and the Nethanims and all Israel dwelt in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. I think we'll stop there since I got sidetracked today and pick it up with chapter 8 next time I speak. And we'll go down and see some of the things that happened in terms of the feasts and so on that occurred at that time. So we'll stop there for today.